Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I tried to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angle on these different issues when they are relevant. So on this week's Current Account, I want to talk about something that people refer to as the Basel III endgame, which comes out of the Basel Capital Accords. I'm going to do that with two of my colleagues. Andres Portilla, he's the Managing Director of the IIF for Regulatory Affairs, and Richard Gray, who's the Director for Prudential Policy at the IIF. Before I turn to them, though, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So I said Basel Capital Accords. So what do those words mean? Basel. Basel is just a small city in Switzerland. You hear it all the time on my podcast or any kind of podcast that thinks about regulatory issues for the financial services industry. And that's because it is the home of what's known as the Bank for International Settlements, which is basically considered the central bank of central banks. So this is where all central bankers get together and talk about anything from monetary policy to regulatory policy. But in the 1970s and 80s, there came a time where due to various financial crises, they needed to try to come up with accords, so accords to basically that were internationally consistent in standards on capital. They came up with what was known as Basel I in 1988, Basel II in 2004. All of that was kind of blown to you know where with the global financial crisis in 2007, 8, and 9. And so then they came up with the Basel III Accords in 2011. All right, so what are capital accords? The first thing is, what is capital for a bank? A bank has to fund itself in order to make loans and get assets. And so when they do this, the capital accords are the supervisory's basically authority to force banks to actually issue equity as opposed to debt. Now, why do they do this? They do this mainly because they're trying to create a buffer for the bank so that if the bank gets into trouble, there is a loss leader equity for the bank to try to protect the bank, to try to protect depositors, and to protect the financial system overall. And so that's what capital is there to try to do. Now, banks don't always like it because capital means that in order to issue equity, it's a higher cost for it to do what it does as a bank. So that's why you kind of have a little bit of push and pull on these issues. In 2011, they came up with Basel III to try to come up with standards across the world, not just for the United States or for Europe or Japan or Canada, but everywhere. So that when you have competition, it is financial institutions competing not based on their regulatory authorities, but based on their capabilities as a financial institution itself. Okay, that's enough background. Now we're getting towards 10 years, or actually 12 years after the Basel III agreement in 2011, and we're getting towards what we're calling the Basel III endgame here in the United States, which may have implications globally. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So with that long throat clearing by me, I want to now turn to Richard. Richard. So what are we talking about on Basel III Endgame, given everything I just kind of explained as background information? Thanks, Clay. To get to that, I 
add a little bit more history in terms of you mentioned the original Basel III drafts that were produced in 2010, 2011. That went through a lot of consultation by what is called the Basel Committee, who is a collection of all the global financial authorities and regulators who are part of the accord, acting under the ultimate uh, auspices of the G20. That, that further refinement resulted in what were called the Basel III final rules in, published in December 2017, although there was a bit of further refinement of the market risk component because there's three components uh, on the capital side, market risk, credit risk, and operational risk, and the market risk were finalised in 2019. They were the final Basel rules. What has then resulted in following that publication is that different jurisdictions who are participating in the Basel Accord have been developing their own local adoption, their own rules for adoption of Basel III in their jurisdiction. Now, the other thing I would like to mention is that the Basel Accord and the Basel III rules are minimum capital and liquidity requirements. That's pretty important. Now, Basel Endgame, when you hear the term Basel Endgame, that is a term that has been used and is being used by the US authorities to describe their adoption in the US of Basel III. So the Basel Endgame is simply the US's adoption of the Basel III global minimum requirements, but for the US financial system and the US banks who are operating in the US under the rules here. Those rules, the draft rules for Basel Endgame were published by the Fed, the FDIC and the OCC, which are the relevant authorities here in July of 2023. Then they're currently subject to public consultation. So that's what Basel Endgame means when you hear that term. By the way, and Richard makes a really good point, which I forgot to mention, which is the Basel Accords, in some respects, have no legal authority whatsoever. However, they're a standard setting, which, as Richard notes, each jurisdiction then figures out how it's going to implement those because there are minimum standards. All right. So, Richard, what did this rule, which you didn't say, but I'll say, which was over a thousand pages, which was done in uh, summer of this year, can't go into any of the details because there's way too many. It's a thousand pages long. But what were they broad sense of trying to do? The broad sense of what they were trying to do is to adopt the rules for the US market and the US circumstances. So the US have published their draft rules in July of this year and that are undergoing consultation. I think it's fair to say that the reaction was one that uh, considers that the adoption locally in the draft rules is uh, very conservative. They made a number of changes and additions. I said the rules are minimum, and certainly I should point out that various jurisdictions, all jurisdictions have the right to go further than the minimum requirements, but there has been some surprise at how far the US agencies have gone. There's some structural changes within credit risk, They've removed use of bank internal models, so it's purely a standardised form, which is a fairly conservative and uh, restrictive adoption for, for credit risk. On operational risk, they've uh, adopted a, a very conservative uh, overlay factor, which results in fairly stringent capital requirements for operational risk. And the area that's particularly been seen as very conservative is in relation to market risk. So the, the market risk and trading and derivative activities of banks. And this is resulting in a very conservative outcome and some significant increases uh, in capital. 
Okay, so Richard, you've used the word conservative three or four times already. So when we think of the word conservative here, it's basically conservative on the part of the regulator to basically say, we're going to put higher standards on you than what is the minimum, maybe much higher standards. And so as a financial institution, you're probably worried about that because it could harm profitability, it could harm maybe the way you conduct your business. So maybe go a little further and just kind of say, you know, what are some of the pushback that you're hearing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. In terms of background, again, what's important is I mentioned earlier that the G20 oversees the actions and the determinations of the Basel Committee. When the Basel rules were being developed for finalisation in March 2017, the G20 put out a communique in directing the Basel Committee to finalise the rules. There were two key components of that direction in that communique. One is to complete them without further significantly increasing overall capital requirements because banks had been actively increasing their capital and liquidity since the global financial crisis quite significantly. And they were seen to be getting to a level that was more than adequate for resilience purposes. And the second part of the communique that it should be completed while promoting a level playing field. And I think these two statements are very germane because the analysis that was put out accompanying the release of the draft rules by the Fed, the Fed's own analysis, has suggested that capital increases in aggregate will be in the order of 15 to 20%. Now, I don't think anybody could argue that those capital increases aren't significant. For a number of the more active banks in certain areas, they could be significantly higher again. And the area, as I mentioned before, that's particularly conservative is market risk. And the Fed's own analysis for banks that are particularly active in market risk and trading and providing risk management services and derivatives could be as high as 70 to 100%. So a doubling of that component of the capital stack of banks who are active in that area. So all of those things, if you like, add up into what has to be considered significant increases in capital. The pushback goes further beyond just that in terms of what it might mean for their balance sheets, what does it mean for what they do? And I think that's this is the other thing that I think needs to be kept in mind. Because the draft rules are seen as very conservative, banks are reassessing the areas uh, in which they'll be particularly active. And I think it's fair to say that if the rules are promulgated in the form they are in the draft at the moment, there's a real prospect of significant increases in cost for bank customers, a potential reduction in a range of services that are provided by banks. That can result in a transition of financial services to less regulated areas, which is not a good thing for financial stability and potential tilt in the level playing field between the regulated and non-regulated sectors. Some of the banks locally in the US are also concerned about level playing field issues internationally. Look, I have to say that each jurisdiction has their own concerns in relation to that. And it's fair to say too, the the foreign banking organisations that are operating in the US who will be bound by these rules for their US operation, the Fed's own analysis shows that they too will be very conservatively treated here. So that's what it means for the for the banks and why you're seeing a, a fairly significant amount of pushback at the moment during this consultation process. All right, Andres, let me try to bring you in here. So Richard mentioned the point at the end of what he was saying about how kind of the warning on international competition, 
All right. So you just got back from Marrakesh. We had a conversation last week about our annual meetings. And, you know, there were obviously a lot of regulators and supervisors in Marrakesh. This had to have been a fairly large part of the conversation. We talked about it a little last week, but maybe you can go a little more into depth as to kind of Richard just kind of mentioned some of the pushback. What were you hearing in Morocco? Yes, Clay. So it won't be surprising to hear that there was a lot of discussion on Basel III in Marrakesh. I mean, we had all the leaders of the major regulatory agencies around the world present in Marrakesh. Even some of them attended our annual meeting. So let me start with Paulo Hernandez de Cos, who's the chair of the Basel Committee and the governor of the Bank of Spain. I actually had the privilege of sitting down with him on stage, and, and we talked about a number of issues, including Basel III. So his first comment was really to encourage all jurisdictions to finalize implementation. I don't see any reason why uh, we should not pursue uh, this objective. And uh, on the contrary, if, if anything, uh, the events uh, in, uh, in a spring should lead us uh, push even for, uh, for, uh, for a full implementation even more than, than, than before. No? And all the arguments uh, that now are used in the US, that before they were used in Europe and in other jurisdictions, that we don't take into account when defining the global standards in, in, in Basel, the specificities of, um, of each jurisdiction are not valid. Uh, I mean, the, the proposal and the final agreement uh, was um, um, only the outcome of many consultation papers uh, with the industry in particular that among many other things uh, will try to take uh, to took into account the the, 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 the different elements that the, the different jurisdictions were, were were making so i don't think this can be taken as a as a as a valid uh, as a valid point as chair of the basel for him is absolutely essential that all major jurisdictions implement basel as you know, both the UK and the US still have to finalize their plan. So you can say almost half or even more of global banking assets are not yet under these rules. Um, I asked him about the US proposals and the ongoing debate. He didn't want to go into details, obviously, but he said that the issue of impact is absolutely essential and important. So he is aware of the importance of addressing that aspect of the proposals. We also heard from Vicky Zaporta. Vicky leads the policy shop at the Bank of England and is in charge of implementing Basel III in the UK. She said that they are currently going through thousands of pages of comments. I mean, their consultation period has ended. And they are hoping to come up with final rules by the beginning of next year. But she did say, that she did not see the level of debate and the level of, let's say, reaction from the industry in the UK. And what explains that is that ultimately the impact of the rules on UK banks is not as significant as it is in the US. So obviously the industry is pushing back less. And the third person that we heard from in Marrakesh was... Urizumi-san, who is the vice chair for international for the Japanese Financial Services Agency, for him, finalizing Basel III is the number one priority. And he explained it in these terms. The Japanese banks have already implemented Basel III. They are under those rules. And it becomes a massive level playing field issue if the UK or the US do not apply Basel in the same way. So for him, 
finalize in Basel and get you know all the world under these new rules is the is the number one priority. So Andres, that's really interesting. So basically, in some respects, the word accord is the word that you were hearing about that people are very worried. Can we get accord? If you're Japan, you're already are doing this, and now the United States is kind of trying to swim its way through this, but they're not. They seem like a pretty far away from getting it done. The UK probably is somewhat similar. They don't want to act first and then have the US come in much, much later. At the same time, as Richard pointed out, there are those that are doing business in the United States who are very worried that the US has gone too far. So maybe I can ask you, and then and Richard can jump in too. How do we get to accord under these circumstances? And what is the timeline or what are the next steps that we should be looking at? I guess, particularly for the United States, but overall as well. Yes. So it is, you know, finalizing Basel III is absolutely decisive for the Basel Accord, let's say, structure or apparatus. All major jurisdictions, when they met in Basel back then, they agreed to implement. So it would be clearly a a major uh, hiccup if, you know, one jurisdiction such as the U.S. does not ultimately apply what was agreed. But this particular case, and the situation is similar with that related to climate risk, it really puts to the test the capacity of countries around the world to sit down at a table and agree on a global standard. They need to come up with something that works across jurisdictions, despite the fact that markets, products, financial institutions, customers, etc., are all different. So you need to be able to come up with a rule that applies internationally and that countries can safely adopt it and adopt it in their own jurisdictions. The overall expectation and what was discussed you know, privately in, in Marrakesh is that the U.S. agencies will need to find a way to address the very serious concerns about impact that the industry has outlined and ultimately come up with a final rule that is sensible and pragmatic. If that doesn't happen and we face a major incident in global policymaking with potential very negative consequences for the global standard setting process. Clay, uh, if I could add to that, final rules will be expected by about mid-2024 and the US have announced that their um, adoption date is July 2025, which is already a delay. Uh, to pick up on something Andreas said, uh, the Japanese regulators are concerned about delay in implementation. Australia has already adopted, uh, in accordance with the original Basel date, January 2023. Canada came soon after. So those jurisdictions have concerns about the delays that are already happening as well, which is pretty important and is also relevant to the argument being made here about level playing field. So it is very important that we do get a level of commitment and consistency, certainly to the extent that's possible. And as you said, Clay, in your introduction, a very good point, the accord is just, if you like, a gentleman's agreement, to use an old-fashioned term, where there's no legal commitment, it is a, an accord that people cooperate with and comply with for the benefit of the global financial system and stability. So it is pretty important that we get to a finalised situation and uh, implementation takes place, but in a practical, uh, pragmatic way that doesn't cause uh, problems for the global financial system 
in terms of graduation to, to shadow sectors or, you know, uh, restricting the provision of appropriately priced financial services. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Andres. This was perfect. I mean, this is an extremely complicated and technical subject, and I think you guys did a great job of boiling it down for us. It sounds like we have a long way to go, but I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, Clay. Thank you, Clay. Well, now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Richard and Andres. Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact. So my three main takeaways are first is that the Basel Capital Accords, which were agreed to actually by governments back in 2011 as standards, and have gone through a number of amendments and changes and so forth over the years, are now at an end point here, at least in the United States, starting with the proposal put forward by the Fed in July of this year. Next, as Richard pointed out, there are a lot of concerns about what the Federal Reserve has done in terms of the Basel Capital Accords, that they have gone too far. They have what's called gold-plated it. That means that they have added a lot of things to make it supposedly more stringent that is creating concerns within the industry. And third, there's actually a lot of concern internationally. And that concern is about, it is supposed to be an accord. Everybody's supposed to be trying to do this. It doesn't have to be exactly perfectly timed, but there can't be humongous gaps or it might create competitive disadvantages based on a regulatory standard. And so that's creating its own set of concerns, as I think Andres pointed out very well. So let me talk about the two things that I'm looking forward to. The first, obviously, is the comments that are going to be received by the Fed, and there will be extensive amount of comments. It's a very, very complicated proposal, and so we're going to see a lot come back. We are hopeful and believe that the Federal Reserve will take those comments seriously and try to make adjustments as best as they possibly can, but that will be something to look forward to. The second is, frankly, some of the political implications of this. It is a technical exercise, but it has created and stirred up some political machinations here in the United States, with a lot of people thinking the Fed is going, going too far and is going to harm our own financial system in an international competition, as well as basically make things unnecessary. You are going to hear more about that, in, is my guess, from both the Senate and from the House of Representatives in the very near future. And now my one sports fact. Earlier in October, Simone Biles, who, let's face it, is the greatest gymnast that ever existed, won four gold medals at the World Championships to become the most decorated female and male gymnast of all time. She now has 37 medals when you count both World Championships and the Olympics. But I don't want to just focus on that. I want to focus on she made a move in vaulting, and I'm going to try to explain it, and I'm going to fail, which is where she did a backhand spring onto the vaulting table to a double pike before landing. And it has really essentially never been done before, or it's never been done in this way before. And so it has been named now the Biles 2 Vault. This is the fifth Time that a specific move that she has done in gymnastics has been named after her. And it got me to thinking, how many other moves out there are named after individual people? 
So it turns out in the world of gymnastics, there's a lot of it. Although very few people have ever had five moves named after them. I mean, I remember growing up, there's something called, and it still is, the Thomas Flair, which is basically named after a U.S. gymnast, probably the first successful male gymnast from the United States named Kurt Thomas. There's a vault that I've always heard about called the Sukahara Vault, which is named after a famous Japanese gymnast. And so I was just thinking about what other sports there are. The axle jump and figure skating is actually named after a Norwegian skater from the late 1800s named Axel Paulson. He was the first one to actually figure out how to land it. Now people are doing quadruple axle jumps. And then usually you don't see this in team sports, but there is something in soccer named the Cruyff turn, which is an invasive dribbling move that's been named after one of the greatest soccer players of all time, Dutch player Johan Cruyff. Anyway, I thought it was really fascinating. And... I did a piece last year on the Fosbury flop and Dick Fosbury, but that was about how to literally change a sport. These are about how to take an existing technique and make it all that much better. And so Simone Biles, who, as I said, is the greatest of all time, has another thing where she's the greatest of all time on, which is getting skills named after her. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Current Account. Again, I want to thank Richard Andres for their excellent contribution. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.